0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So, Susan or Tammy, uh, if I were to get a copy of your SF 86, what's the most embarrassing thing I would find on your? Personal background for your security clearance. You
2: might have a few useful indiscretions described here or there. Yeah, you I know. think probably the most
0: embarrassing thing would be how little I got paid as a graduate student. <laughs> Do you have to
1: disclose that? You have to disclose. Also, she has oh. to disclose that she's married to me.
0: Yeah. Which Unfortunately, is, that's already part of the public record. Genuinely embarrassing <laughs> fact
1: Don't about. tell Donald Trump. Sh- he might pull so your clearance. serious bad judgment. <gasps>
0: I, I do have to point out that the Chinese hacked OPM, and so everyone probably already has Susan's and my SF-86. <laughs> everyone <laughs>
3: except the, the press.
0: Right. Or, right. or, or Republican or Paul pack. Ryan. Right. Right. Although if Paul Ryan really wanted our SF-86s, apparently he could get them. Anyone yeah. can get
2: them. <laughs> you just have to know who to call.
1: In China. Hello and welcome to Rational Security the Kim Jong Un mm, just kidding edition. I'm Shane Harris. I've never filled out a security clearance form.
2: Me neither. Shane, I would speculate that you might not pass the security clearance I form, would want not to, to point
1: fingers I have to say, here. I have a journalist friend who shall remain nameless, uh, but he's a very prominent journalist at a well-known publication who served for a period of time in the Pentagon and had a clearance. And I'm like, how in the holy hell did you get a security clearance I I say that about a lot of people. (laughs) It's amazing. But apparently anyone can get one and they can get taken away. Mike Flynn, for example. (laughs)
2: Jared (laughs) Kushner.
1: Uh, we are going to talk later in the podcast, I think, in Object Lessons about this security clearance, clearance case. In case people are just tuning in going, what the F are they talking about? Which, granted, you probably have that oh, question most times in our is intros. is
0: way up on the news. They're they totally know up what on we're
1: it. Talking Let's about. just do the whole episode in shorthand.
2: Okay. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Let's start in the middle of each article. <laughs> you read about this, right? That thing that happened in Bangladesh? Yeah, you know about the thing in Bangladesh. Okay, anyway, yeah, what do you think of that? <laughs> Yeah,
0: you know that letter.
1: Yeah, it's amazing that letter, right? <laughs> that thing that happened that he tweeted. North Korea, crazy. <laughs> North Korea, North Korea, crazy. Next topic. <laughs> We're It'll done. A shorter Object show. This is the version. What's that? What's that ad? That ad that 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 takes all the books and uh, that app and it condenses them. This, no, they, no. they don't advertise with us, oh, wait, but wait. they advertise Rational with us. us? Rational
3: is brought to you this week by that app. <laughs>
1: by that someone who takes an all an the I books and condenses them. I love how they try <laughs> and pitch topic. it, too, is that, like, you know, you're busy but very curious. This takes all of this. That's why you need – it's, like, called, like – what was it called? Blinkist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, it's just—it's like Reader's Digest condensed books in audio form.
0: It's like that Shakespeare comedy thing that condenses all the Shakespeare. Oh film. yeah, like yeah, two The two-minute Hamlet.
1: Two
3: yeah.
0: Hamlet.
1: Blinkist, if you're listening, and I have terribly misdescribed your application, maybe you should like give us a free trial, and <laughs> you could be a, an yeah. advertiser, I'll sponsor also, the show,
0: and give us some text about your app that's accurate. Also, yeah. I just want to say
3: that this week, I or today, I, in response to Don McGann's dismissal. Dismissal, resignation, we're not sure which it is, dispatch, I tweeted paging ZipRecruiter. And lots and lots of people responded <laughs> that by saying, is ZipRecruiter going to uh, sponsor rational security? Aww,
0: and so if only.
3: and so, I just want a she message bad, but... out there to the folks at ZipRecruiter, we don't want your sponsorship because, you know, Don McGahn, the White House is going to be able to find a job, somebody... A terrible lawyer to replace Don McGann without
1: ZipRecruiter.
3: <laughs> so if you're doing, you know, if you have somebody to hire like a White House counsel, don't use ZipRecruiter. Don't
1: use because
3: they don't sponsor rational
1: Security. <laughs> or if you do, and they get you Don McGann, I mean, change applications. <laughs> This week on the podcast, oh, well, I am here in the Jungle Studio, in case you didn't know it. We're so shorthanded, I didn't even introduce my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Coffin us. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. This week on the podcast, a former NSA contractor receives a stiff prison sentence for giving classified information to journalists. Nuclear disarmament talks with North Korea hit big roadblocks. And the administration backs off its plan to cut billions of dollars in and aid. Um, so let's start with the story of Reality Winner, uh, I guess maybe the final chapter for now uh, in the saga of this former uh, NSA contractor. She's, correct me if I'm 26, 27? She's 26. young. 26. 26, uh, who was a uh, linguist for the government and for NSA uh, and was convicted on charges stemming from a leak of classified information to The Intercept uh the document in question had to do with russian efforts to interfere with the election in 2016. Uh, so I think that the, the leak itself was uh, was obviously framed as being highly in the public interest. But the sentence that was imposed on reality winner was pretty tough. Prosecutor Susan said this was, I don't know if this is accurate, but the longest sentence ever given uh, in a case involving leak of classified information.
2: I think that's correct.
1: So let's just start with uh, your, your, I mean, this is, you know, obviously your former agency in your wheelhouse. So is this a just sentence, and were you surprised by the, the the length and the severity?
2: So, I don't know if this is a just sentence. I don't think it is a shocking one, considering the case against her. You know, and, and look, I think we should sort of start by acknowledging it's really sad when a young person, especially someone who has served their country makes a really profound error in judgment, and, and suffers extreme consequences for that. And that's not something that I want to be glib about at all or, or celebratory. I, I think that this is sort of a sad story top to bottom. I also don't think that we should sort of pound the table about leaks of classified information. You know, it's always this this grave uh, harm to national security. Uh, for other reasons, this morning, I found myself rereading um, a great David Posen Law Review article, which I would really commend any uh, listeners that are interested in sort of the issue of leaks. It's called the Leaky Leviathan. And it's this really sort of sophisticated explanation about the role that leaks play and sort of authorized and unauthorized disclosures and and plants and all sorts of things. And, And this is a really, really complex area in which anyone who sort of talks about that in black and white terms, you know, is not sort of sufficiently capturing the nuance. That said... This is a really, really, really bad leak of classified information. This is a textbook area in which you would expect a really long prison sentence. This is an individual who – the reason why you don't let people substitute their judgment for classification markings is because they don't have all of the necessary context, right? You don't understand what you're looking at necessarily and how it might fit into all these other pieces, What this person decided to disclose was highly detailed operational information that is liable to reveal not just the information itself, but also the method in which it was collected. Now, she thinks that she is revealing just one piece of information that she thinks that the public is entitled to know. What she doesn't understand is there is a massive investigation paired with all kinds of diplomatic efforts, military efforts, other things that are going on, Related to this, and by revealing it in that moment, she could have, and, and we don't know to the extent that it, it did, but but certainly could have in a very real real way compromised those efforts. And so, you know, I, I think that this is just a, it's a textbook classic example of why these leaks and individual thinking that this is in the national interest or this is the public interest is is not an acceptable defense. So I think there are a couple
0: of other questions that have come up in the coverage of Reality Winner's case and this sentence. One is this descriptor that's sometimes applied to her as a whistleblower, and the other is the status of the organization to which she leaked the material, the Intercept. And she was called and is called a whistleblower by some of her supporters because she gave information to what they consider a press organization a media organization but also because she gave information that she believed the public had a right to know that she felt the government was improperly withholding or at least that's the the argument that's made and that therefore she should be celebrated rather than pleading guilty to a crime and it's it's worth sort of inserting the factoid that she pled This was, you know, she wasn't convicted. She agreed and acknowledged that this was a huge error uh, and said so in court. But I, I just wanted to get your take on the public interest dimension of this because, of course, we are all talking every week on this show about Russian efforts to interfere in the American electoral process. And the information that came out as a result of this leak did inform. The public discussion, it contributed to additional reporting by a lot of other organizations. It did have an impact. And so how do we think about that public benefit relative to the cost? In other words, why aren't we talking about this case the way we talk about other leaks as something of public value.
1: And just before you answer that question, just to make sure people are on the same page, um, the Intercept report, it detailed a document that was leaked to them about Russian attempts to interfere with the election by hacking a US voting software company and sending spear phishing emails to local election officials just before the election. So this was quite specific about Russian tactics to interfere with and, and potentially try to it look, you could look at it and think manipulate votes.
2: Yeah, so um, I think I, I generally sort of disagree on the characterization of the impact. I don't think that this was a significant story that really moved the ball forward. And I think if you look at it sort of in the context of the time, you already have relatively detailed leaks, and we should acknowledge sort of leaks, although not of classified information necessarily, from the intelligence community that this was ongoing. You have a, a statement out of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, signed by the other intelligence agencies. And I think at this point, you already have a, a statement from the White House itself. And so the notion that this provided new information, I I, I don't think that was the case. I I don't think it changed thinking or particularly informed the public. And actually, I think that what it did was what the White House was struggling with in that moment was how to inform the public and defer the adversary in a way that wasn't going to achieve the goal for them by actually undermining confidence in, in American elections among the population. You really had to be careful in the way you were going to talk about this. And so by leaking this type of information about targeting, by the way, without any assessment of success or impact or real threat, right? This is all just raw intelligence. No context about about the actual realized threat. What you did or what she risked was generally undermining the public confidence, without actually informing them meaningfully in any way. And so actually that's part of the the sad part of this story is that she did all of this and I don't think it made any bit of difference whatsoever.
1: Well, that makes me wonder then, and maybe Ben, you want to address this or Susan, I mean, then, then why, what justifies a five-year-plus prison sentence? People have leaked information, I think we could argue, that is potentially more damaging and revealing or just as but received lesser sentences. So, so why take this young woman and put her in prison for this long. So I have never done a side
3: by side of all the sentences associated with all leaks that were prosecuted. I do think that it is important to distinguish when people say the longest sentence ever That's discounting, I think, Chelsea Manning, who was not in the federal court system, but was in the uh, military court martial system. Sentenced
2: to more than 20 years. Right. And
3: so, you know, there aren't that many of these cases to begin with. And so, you know, one possibility is that the sort of common law of sentencing in this area is kind of is in its relatively early phases. And we're excluding the actual extreme outlier case in Chelsea Manning. And we're also excluding the other extreme outlier case, which is Edward Snowden, because he's a fugitive and hasn't been sentenced. And so the universe of cases that we're dealing with here are cases that are by and large, what's his name? Morrison and some cases that are non-IC, but, and, and a, a bit less extreme. Look, this is a situation in which, as Susan said, a person who was not authorized to do so decided she knew better than the entire system what information needed to be made public and... Took it on herself to do that. And when you do that, you subject yourself to the vagaries of the system. And I'm not going to defend or justify the specific sentence, except it's, you know, what the judge after reading the pre-sentence report and hearing from both sides in a, in a plea decided was appropriate. And it appears to be within the guidelines. Um, so it's probably within the range of what she should have expected would happen to her if she got caught. My question about this is how we evaluate the role of The Intercept and particularly the role of Glenn Greenwald. And, you know, because Glenn, I think it's, you know, Glenn has been on a campaign ever since Edward Snowden to persuade vulnerable people in the intelligence community that the great heroic thing that you can do is exactly what this woman did and he never really talks about the possibility of getting caught you know because in fact he's you know done these sort of valorizing things of snowden living happily in moscow and you know his girlfriends there with him right and so he you, you know, too
1: can have a nice life with your girlfriend in yeah,
3: moscow yeah under the protection of vladimir putin and it's always with this idea that you know heroism that there aren't consequences at the end of the day. And so my question is, I'm curious, Shane, for your view of this. You're, you know, you've published leaks. You're not a, you're like, what, how should we understand the intercepts role here and the role of of Glenn's in particular encouraging people to do this sort of thing?
2: And Shane, before you answer, I'm going to add one more thing for yeah, you please. to consider on yeah, sort of, because yeah. I am really curious on the press sort of question here. And that's that it's not just that the Intercept, uh, you know, encouraged the leak. They actually got this person caught. And they did it because they insisted, for clickbait purposes, on actually producing and linking the real document that this person had produced, right? So, uh, you but know, they. That she had mailed to them. That yeah. she had mailed to them. So they saw the fold, and, and uh, you know, it's since been disclosed that NSA uses measures like microprinting and other things in order to understand how. Right. So had they, they engaged in different journalistic practices, which might have got them a less splashy headline, but just, just describing in general terms what they they saw, this person, their source might not have been outed. So I, I'm also sort of curious, you know, going along with Ben's point about soliciting this information, you know, was there a breach here in terms of like a, an obligation to the source?
1: Yeah, I, and I the part that I find myself reflecting the most about in this story is just that it's the behavior of the individual reporters in the publication, and I get very upset <laughs> with the way they handled this. I think that you're right. I think that there is a maybe. I don't know if it was clickbait or also this kind of show your work transparency that The Intercept is really into. But I found myself going, "How could you guys be so stupid? I mean, what a dumb mistake! I mean, you can't just take the documents that people send you and assume that there is nothing on the document that will indicate the provenance of the document. I mean, it could be, you know. Stamps on it. I mean, it's something that obvious. But I mean, you would think that you know maybe this publication that has spent so much time exploring the inner workings and the in the tricks of the trade of the national security agency might think there's a way that they can tell uh, what printer something came off of. It's, it was just it was careless, and I and I, I have no doubt that the reporters on it didn't, were not acting out of a. Uh, I don't think they were being reckless. I don't think they intended to get their source caught. That is really one of the worst things that could happen to an investigative reporter. But it does speak to a kind of a carelessness. And to Ben's point, I mean, I hadn't ever quite thought of it this way. You know, when you are the editor of the publication, or I forget maybe what Glenn's exact title is, but you are actively encouraging people to send you information, I think – it makes it more incumbent upon you than even in ordinary circumstances that you take extra measures to protect those people you are soliciting classified information not directly and we're all careful about how we do this you know we have systems at the washington post the new york times the wall street journal have them where you can submit things in secret, anonymously to people. In this case, she just mailed it in. That's one way to do it. But if you're going to go out there and actively say to people, send us stuff that you're really not supposed to be sending us, you really have to take extra steps to ensure that it does not come back on that person. I think we all, as journalists, learned a lesson in this case. And I found myself, as probably a lot of reporters and readers did too, wondering, was it really worth it? I mean, was it really so important to publish the individual document that you took the risk that ultimately ends up sending this person to jail for the next five years of her life. It, it, it's There were just a lot of mistakes, and I do – Wonder, I think, Ben, I don't take as, maybe as critical a view of The Intercept as, as you do, but I wonder if in their kind of zeal to report on this subject, they are not stopping and thinking about what their responsibility is to implement their own security practices and tradecraft to keep their sources safe. And that seems like a real failure. Yeah,
3: so I was, I was posing the question more than I was posing an answer to it because, you know, I don't know what the right answer there is. Certainly some people – I'm not opposed to all classified leaks. And I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for a news organization to say, Hey, you know, you don't ask airlines to denounce jet fuel for their deleterious effects on the environment. Don't ask us of all people to be the ones to denounce leaks. But Glenn has gone a little further than that. He's made a very strong serial public case for them in which he has not ever been willing to consider the downsides, including, by the way, the downsides for the people who do it and get caught. And so I do think when somebody in her position doing exactly what Glenn said to The Intercept gets caught and goes to jail for five years— it is worth asking: Lizette, Does he have some reckoning to to have here?
2: I mean, look, I'm um, rarely in the position of wanting to defend Glenn Greenwald, but Glenn Greenwald was not tasked with the protect with the protection of classified information. This woman was, and whenever you you know swear an oath and join the intelligence community or become a contractor and are given this sort of exceptional public trust, the obligation is yours, and there are always going to be tempting circumstances. I've I've seen stories where I thought, why doesn't the agency just reveal this and in- this additional information? And for the context, it would be such a good news story. For people would understand. You, you know, you don't get to make the determination. And so, I'm no admirer of sort of Greenwald's tactics, but but ultimately, the responsibility here has to be held by the people who have this obligation. You know, to Shane's point, I don't want to sort of get too far into First Amendment law because it's it's not my area. I do think though there is case law that sort of the, the the protections of the First Amendment do not go into solicitation of materials. I think that there are cases on point. Um, uh, in which reporters are, are potentially risk being held liable into sort of theft of government property. Yeah, that's why theories. we
1: never actively so, ask for information. Right.
2: So usually right. sort of general counsels of, Classical you know, media organizations right. will counsel as a sort of a matter of legal protection. You know, you can accept this information, but don't actually solicit it because then you might be engaging in sort of conspiracy or solicitation yeah. of stolen materials.
1: Tammy, last word.
0: I just think it's worth noting that The Intercept apparently helped pay for reality winners' defense. So it seems to me that de facto they did acknowledge some culpability here.
1: So we're getting to the end of summer when people have visions of catching some last rays on the beach. Mike Pompeo probably had visions in his head of, sunning on the beaches of north korea
0: those beautiful beaches where trump hotels hotels will soon be built
1: (laughs) but no the boss said your trip is canceled you're staying here never Never mind (laughs) never mind (laughs) and he was so looking forward to having delicious dinner in pyongyang so Mike Pompeo did not go on his trip uh to North Korea. The president said in a statement, or was it a tweet? I can't remember. I think it was a tweet. No, yeah, it was a tweet. It Who was knows a tweet it was, these it days? Two, God, yeah, it was two tweets. Said what uh, I think had been obvious to many people, including readers of the Washington Post, which was that these talks with North Korea were not making any demonstrable progress. In fact, that there was ample evidence that the North Koreans were jerking our chain, I think is the diplomatic term, Tammy. Um And that we weren't really getting towards denuclearization of the peninsula and the question as we've talked about in the podcast of what the hell people even meant by denuclearization and the administration understand that to the North Koreans, that means something different. So you couple that with uh, uh, already now some, some, some statements also from the North Koreans indicating that they think that basically the talks are kind of hanging in the balance here. Is it too soon, Tammy, to basically declare these now dead talks? Is there some sort of pause button we've hit? Or is this really, finally, the writing is on the wall, and we're not going to be making any real progress with North Korea?
0: Uh, Look, I don't think we're done with this at all yet. I do think that there is a problem in the talks. And it's not just a lack of clarity over the objective, although I do think that's a problem. But the proximate problem is the who jumps first problem which is that the north koreans are demanding that the united states issue a declaration that it is ending its state of war with the koreans which in fact we don't have a declaration of war on the korean peninsula it was a un police action uh, but they but they want a declaration from the united states that the war is over and the United States wants from North Korea a declaration of its existing nuclear weapons program, how many weapons it has, what facilities it has, what capabilities it has, that would be then the basis for any dismantling or rollback of the program. And each side wants the other to go first. So that's kind of the proximate issue. Josh Rogan did some amazing uh, reporting on this, which he published in a column after the trip was canceled about a letter that was sent by a senior North Korean leader to Secretary Pompeo that apparently was the catalyst for the president's decision and that Pompeo agreed with and endorsed the president's decision to cancel the trip in light of this letter which was apparently very hostile and aggressive. And so I think what we've seen in repeated rounds is that the US kind of goes in full of smiles and actually pumps up the prospects of progress and then as soon as the meeting is over in the North Koreans piss all over it. And having gotten a hostile letter, they decided, well, let's not go play that another round of that. And so in a way, I think it's kind of sensible. The second problem, though, is that there is a big division within uh, the administration over what policy approach they should take toward North Korea. Pompeo wants to go on with these conversations. He just got President Trump to agree to the appointment of a special envoy, Steve Biegun, who's a very serious, thoughtful, intelligent guy, a sort of mainstream Republican foreign policy, national security guy. And and he wants to go ahead with engagement. But John Bolton and Jim Mattis remain extremely skeptical of this approach. And so they're basically just waiting for a really obvious failure, and then they're going to jump.
1: I, I listened to how Tammy's laid it out, and I think somebody could make the case That for all of the sort of bass-ackward traditionally way we did this, where we sort of started with the principals meeting and then worked our way down to negotiations, something may have worked here insofar as the administration can say, look, we were ready to meet with these people and look at how unreasonable they're being. We tried, it failed, but at least we tried and we got further than anyone else has gone before.
2: I mean, I think that the answer to that question depends on what you view as the actual goal. So if the goal is for the Trump administration to be able to say we did more than anyone else or we tried something different, sure. If the goal here is actual progress towards a solution on the Korean Peninsula – I don't see how we're any closer now in a meaningful way than we were before. I, I, I do think Trump's goal, I, I think the president thinks about it far more in the former sense, which is that, you know, essentially he sort of creates the, he himself creates the threat of war. He then resolves the immediate threat of war and declares victory, right? And, and that's that was the news cycle that he wanted and needed. And and what I'm curious about now is sort of what Trump does now, right? He, he declared that North Korea was no longer a nuclear threat, period, you know, like washes his hands of the whole thing. And now you have the State Department and the NSC and the Pentagon that actually have to to make something out of this policy of engagement. And it doesn't appear that the president actually does have strong instincts on engagement and sort of the necessary will to want to make this work, to want to make it work, even through sort of the... The difficulty is the kind of hostile relationship that, are, that is necessarily going to be part of this. You, you know, so I, I'm, I'm just – I'm curious as to once again, you know, whether or not a neglectful president or a president that sort of is – doesn't actually have any clear or firm impulses on the matter. What policy is there to actually implement at the end of the day?
3: So, again, I this is the severalth time that I've found myself in these conversations being – a. a Cautiously defensive of the administration on North Korea, but I'll do it again, which is I think there is a little bit more to be said for their outcomes than people have given them credit for. And they have certainly beclowned themselves in all appearances. They have certainly made the United States look silly. And that has real costs. And I don't want to understate that. On the other hand, when they came in, the North Koreans were firing missiles on a regular basis. There was—they didn't create the threat of war. There was a uh, ongoing crisis, escalating crisis uh, that Obama warned Trump was the most serious thing on his plate and the biggest, most dangerous situation they were confronting in the world. And, all the
2: fire and fury tweets.
3: No, so so Trump definitely escalated that um, and did a certain amount of brinksmanship with it. But the result today is that things are dramatically calmer than they were not merely when he said those things, but then they were when he came in. And if you were Barack Obama on January 19th, 2017 and say, snap your fingers, and the situation will look like the situation that exists today, I have no doubt that Barack Obama snaps his fingers. Now, whether that's worth the cost that we've paid in challenge coins and summitry, And by the way, you should all have the lawfare challenge coin, not the, the Singapore summit challenge coin. Um, whether, you know, whether like the, the idiocy the, that we've gone through, uh, whether it's worth it, I, I, I don't know. And I, you know, believe in the dignity of the country and the dignity of the presidency. And I don't like watching any of those things. But I am constrained to note that, you know, the outcome has not been terrible.
0: Okay, so I think that if your criticism is on the basis of sort of silliness or degrading the dignity or credibility of the presidency, I think it's that's the wrong target.
3: An erosion of credibility.
0: I I think that's the wrong target. I think that the, the real problem with the way the president... And his team have approached this is not, you know, the silliness of a challenge coin. The real problem is that the erratic, you know, wild swings between fire and fury and glad handing Kim Jong-un has confused allies. It's confused adversaries who are necessary partners to actually achieving progress. And so while, yes, you can say compared to the situation when he took office, there's been some very limited progress in the sense that there haven't been additional tests in the last few months. Um, That could change tomorrow, by the way. What you have instead, though, is the Chinese saying, well, we don't actually have to take Trump's maximum pressure sanctions approach seriously. We can openly flout these sanctions, because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And you have the South Koreans, our allies, where we have a lot invested, going on their own in terms of engagement with North Korea, because they don't understand what our policy is with respect to engagement versus confrontation. And they have their own stake in engagement. So like, engagement in and of itself, fine, it's a perfectly justifiable approach. It's possible that any president would have tried it. He tried it in a silly way. Okay, whatever. The real problem is not the engagement and it's not the silliness. It's the erratic swings between engagement and confrontation that have confused everybody we need to be on the same page with us. I
1: want to offer a provocative framing device for thinking about this. And you guys tell me what you think. Could we understand the whole North Korean negotiation? largely through two polls, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, with Donald Trump being the stupid approach and Mike Pompeo being the smart approach. And here's what I'm thinking. I actually think that Donald Trump wanted to denuclearize the North Korean Peninsula. Like, I really thought he thought this would be a great deal and a great thing for the world. And it would be a relatively straightforward set of negotiations. We'll sit down, you tell me what you need. I'll tell you what I need. It'll be great. My force of personnel, fine. We found everyone said that was going to fail from the beginning. It's clear for all the that, that many of those predictions have come true. We can point to all of the ways that his naivete, his lack of foreign policy experience, the fact that he's actually not a good negotiator, which we think we knew even before he was elected.
3: he wrote the art of the
1: deal. <laughs> he did. <laughs> um, yeah, well, anyway, somebody wrote it. Uh, but Mike Pompeo, also not a career diplomat, not somebody with great experience in negotiation, uh, I would argue, not somebody with deep a, a deep reservoir experience in foreign policy but who was smart enough to say, okay, this is the situation I've been handed. I'm going to find the smartest people who know the account. I'm going to take them with me on the plane. I'm going to find the CIA people. I'm going to find the State Department people, and we're going to try to make this work. Mike Pompeo, not a dumb man, uh, somebody who obviously is a, is a student to some degree of foreign policy, but it seemed to me like he got handed right a big steaming pile of mess. Mm-hmm and did what you're supposed to do in a situation like this, which I guess is not – he couldn't exactly start over back at the beginning. And I don't want to give him too much credit here because ultimately he does own to some degree the failure of this. But it seems like the Pompeo approach is the way we would expect somebody to do this, especially if we got to that point, and that really what he had to do was not just manage the process but manage a boss. And it seemed like he generally, I have to say, did those – reasonably well under the circumstances
0: yeah i think so and i think he's not done yet i don't think that he's he's ready to admit failure i although i think that bolton and mattis are eager to declare well, failure
1: and mattis has said that the the quote-unquote war games are back on right
2: he said uh, they were never off they
1: were never they were, off. Temp-
2: they were temporarily suspended and now they're not suspended
1: i only heard a tweet i did not get a written order
2: <laughs> right right
1: you you want to say something?
0: No 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 I'm I'm done.
1: That we- <laughs> just looked like he was about to make a brilliant point. All right, well so be so convenient. it's it,
0: so it might be in other words, Shane. It it might be real diplomacy in spite of the president.
1: It feels like that. I mean, look. One of my great regrets, actually, uh, as as a journalist in 2017, was that. Nobody on the intelligence beat ever wrote a really great profile of Mike Pompeo because we were all working on the Russia account. But I mean, this is somebody, you know, he's a remarkably controversial, polarizing, interesting figure He was, wrote me a me- really mean letter. Once. Well, he's yeah. I mean, he's very Look, he is very sensitive. He's a fudge
2: recipe Ben. Come he on. He, he,
1: he, is, he is very easily provoked. You see it when he's asked even a mildly uh uh, probing question from a reporter.
3: By the way, for those listeners who have not watched his confrontation with the Senate Foreign Affairs, uh, right. it is yes. an astonishing piece of political right. theater. It is like a riveting two and a half hours, even a month and a half later. Just go spend some quality time with it. It's really good fun.
0: Yeah. And you're probably not going to come out of it thinking better of Mike Pompeo. Well, I might...
1: To that point, I mean, like, so I say it's a regret that nobody ever wrote about this amazingly colorful political figure running the CIA, and now he is running the State Department. And I think – I wonder if a lot of our – understanding and our insight about what's going on with the North Korean negotiations is actually undercut by the fact that people have not really spent time studying Mike Pompeo. Like, where is the profile of Mike Pompeo negotiator in chief, right? Politico, I mean, is...
0: get on this. <laughs> okay.
1: I mean, it's no longer my portfolio. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, I don't know, there, there's just much more to be learned about this period, largely by studying the person who has been in the driver's seat and. I don't know. I wish I would have written that. Story. Do
2: you think Rex Tillerson is somewhere like in a cowboy hat, smoking a cigar, <laughs> just like <laughs> enjoying this not being his have problem? Have fun in Pyongyang, buddy. Maybe,
3: maybe he's still on the
0: can.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, let me quickly replace that pleasant image with a yeah, third and topic.
0: speaking of Mike Pompeo. <laughs>
1: speaking of get off the can, the administration is backing off its plan. To cut billions of dollars uh, in foreign aid. So the the backstory on this, I'll I'll just uh, cite from a Washington Post story that my colleagues wrote, uh, is that the administration has dropped a proposal to cut billions of dollars in foreign aid after meeting bipartisan resistance from members of Congress who thought it was a backdoor effort to hijack spending that Congress already had approved. And the Office of Management and Budget, which it considered taking back more than $3 billion uh, in unspent foreign aid as the fiscal year is nearing its end at the end of September, told members of Congress on Tuesday the rollback will not occur according to traditional uh, congressional aides. Only foreign aid from the budgets from the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development were targeted. Tammy, this this seems like a, a big deal and kind of an interesting – we are just talking about Mike Pompeo. Uh, This is kind of like Mike Pompeo winning one for his new team, right? He said he wants to put swagger back in the State Department. Uh, He's got like, what, 10% of his budget now back that he thought he wasn't going to have.
0: Yeah, so if it was high noon, guns at dawn, or high noon confrontation between Mike Pompeo and Mick Mulvaney, clear that Pompeo won this round. And by the way, this is not the first time that Mulvaney has tried this particular trick. This actually started back in the spring uh, when the Office of Management and Budget that he runs uh, just popped into the Federal Register a little notice that they were going to rescind uh, $52 million from the Millennium Challenge Corporation and $250 million from the U.S. AID Ebola response budget. But the announcement that came this month in August was much more dramatic. They basically sent a notice out to USAID and the State Department um, that administer U.S. foreign aid saying, tell us what you're not going to have obligated by the middle of August and we're going to take it back. In other words, it doesn't matter which country it's for, or what issue it's for, you know, world food program or military aid to a counterterrorism partner or whatever. If you haven't spent it by August 15th, we're freezing it. It's um, like that
1: money in your health savings account.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> use it and it or buy glasses. glasses. And, you know, th- look, all the money appropriated by Congress for foreign aid is use it or lose it in a sense. It's usually money that is available for two or three years. And the money that Mulvaney was targeting was two-year money that was expiring at the end of September. And so these agencies were planning to obligate it by the end of September. And so he basically wanted to kind of park it for this 45-day period that he's allowed under the law. But that 45-day period would have gone over past the end of September. And so the money would have expired poof, goes back to the Treasury. Congress was very upset, of course, because they appropriate the stuff they think the agencies should spend what they appropriate. And so it was kind of setting up a clash of wills between the executive and legislative branch going back to confrontations from the Nixon era, uh, in response to which Congress passed an act forbidding the executive branch from impounding money that Congress had appropriated. So that confrontation is now dissipated. But I think there are a couple other lessons that come out of this. One is that Mick Mulvaney's crusade against foreign aid, you know, the first budget he submitted to Congress for President Trump was going to cut foreign aid by 30 percent. He is so committed to this, he's willing to provoke a separation of powers problem And, you know, flout the will of Congress just to cut the money. He hates it that much. And he doesn't care what foreign aid he cuts as long as he gets to cut some. It's really it's just an amazing prejudice. And I don't understand the basis for it. But the other thing that comes out of this, I think, is Mike Pompeo. Secretary Tillerson, when that thirty percent cut was proposed, seemed just helpless in the face of OMB. Could get no backup in the administration. Kind of went up to Congress and said, "Well, you know, I guess we don't need the money."
1: <laughs> and, and Congress I'm going just, back to the can.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike Pompeo decided so, to pick the fight, and, and he, he-, sent,
3: he sent Mick Mulvaney a letter that, <laughs> as the end, it says, "Mick." comma you should be better than this.
0: Oh, Ben, you gotta quit taking it so personally. <laughs> Clearly, Pompeo's like got some sharp edges
3: no, com- or some com- sharp Pompeo elbows. had had got his mojo on this one. He he really kicked Mulvaney's warm up. Ben, yeah, that's right. You were his warm up. Yeah, you
1: you had to you just had to get the goddamn fudge recipe. <laughs> he
3: didn't send Mulvaney the fudge.
1: No, he didn't.
3: Right? He like he just Ben took my Mul-
1: fudge. You will not take my AID, buddy, you <laughs> Son of a bitch.
2: <laughs> I mean, Timmy, me, I wonder, what is there to read into the fact that Congress appears to have won this confrontation? Is is this just, you know, Congress the next round? And Mulvaney. Mulvaney is so committed and the administration is so committed to rolling back these programs, to rolling back this oh, it's funding. A, it's a so divide we're and
4: conquer it. thing.
3: It's when the White House – when, when – Congress can team up with a powerful cabinet member who can throw his weight around the executive branch. The, le- the Then the legislative branch will tend to win these separation of powers fights when the executive branch is really unified, which is hard in this administration because unity, not you know, not the Hamiltonian value these guys are really good at. The executive branch can run roughshod over – Uh, over the legislature, but here Pompeo really teamed up with Congress and they kicked ass together.
0: So I think that's right. I also think that unity was important on the legislative side because this is a case where there are powerful committee chairmen, Ed Royce, you know, Lindsey Graham, who have a lot at stake in the appropriation of these funds, appropriations, a core authority of the legislative branch. And so, The White House is impinging on congressional prerogatives in a way that unites Republicans and Democrats. And the pushback on the Hill was wall to wall across the aisle. And I think that made it much harder for Mulvaney. That's why this was sort of round three of his effort to cut U.S. foreign aid. And this time um, he actually had an adversary within the administration as well.
1: I also wonder if this is... I mean, there's an agenda that the Trump administration has, right? And you could argue that Pompeo was moving against that agenda. Does he feel emboldened to do it? Because I, I think he's the closest member of the cabinet, basically, certainly in the national security establishment, to the president. And I just wonder if whether he thinks that, even though I'm going to be doing something that is not only going against the OMB chief and is go, but is also going against kind of you know what the agenda is. I got this. I'm going to win this because the president and I are tight. He probably feels like he can get away with a lot more than other cabinet members could.
0: Right. And so the question is, you know, what else will he use that power for? Right. On what other issues is he going to go to the president and say, look. You got to trust me on this one and and get that back. Um, The other place where you see people within the White House working very hard to tread on the State Department's territory, now Mike Pompeo's territory, is immigration policy, where Stephen Miller has put his own allies, serious anti-immigration people into jobs in the State Department that are relevant to refugee admissions. And, you know, is Pompeo going to push back on that, too? Or is that a case where the administration's agenda is something he's on board
1: with? It's also worth remembering one of Mike Pompeo's stronger allies in the administration, Gina Haspel, the CIA director, who arguably owes much of her assent to that position to him. And I would guess is probably very, very pleased to let the Secretary of State manage the relationship with the president. Ah, good point. So she's very happy to have him over there talking to him.
0: Mike Pompeo's swagger is back. <laughs> He's going to swagger. I
1: love that. Uh, Bringing uh, the swagger back, baby. He does. I could could he swagger? How would he look if he were swagger? Uh, he maybe he shouldn't try the actual swagger. Yeah. We, we don't have just to
0: s- actually imagine. Just
1: stride with confidence. Right, so there you second. go. The, the
0: other thing is, though. Swing your arms.
1: Just Well, not too much.
3: <laughs> His general <laughs> state of issues. being is is more of a sneer or a yeah. snarl yeah. than a swagger. Yeah. And, like, I was really struck. He looks like he'd rip your face off. <laughs> I was really struck by it in that Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. Because he's, like, yeah. you can curly see you can his see blood boiling. Yeah, the yeah. Really, lip he is He doesn't curly. hide it at and all. And at the no. very end of that hearing, you know, Corker very politely says to him, you know, Menendez had just given him this lecture, and they'd had this back and forth. And Corker says, you know, Mr. Secretary, I'd like to give you the last word. Is there anything you'd like to say? And he just looks at him and says, not a word.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and then gets up. And it, It's a really striking yeah. moment, but it's not swagger. It's anger, repressed
1: hostility. It's just like.
0: Yeah, do yeah, not get on this man's bad yeah, side. That's turn the camera off say. and we're
1: going to go and meet me in the cloakroom. Seriously. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, uh, I will go first because mine's a little bit melancholy. But I wanted to uh, uh, mark a sad passing of a uh, friend and one-time colleague of mine who was, I think, a unique voice oh, in this the is very sad. national security community. Yeah, Matthew Aid passed away. He was 16 years old. Uh, according to his brother, he uh, died of a heart condition. I had not seen him in about four years or so. Uh, We used to do some work together at Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, And the pieces we did actually were reflective of one of Matt's great – he would probably say obsessions. He joked that when he had spare time or vacation time – He would go to the National Archives and look up all of the recently declassified intelligence documents and reports uh, and just kind of mine through them, looking for cool stories and interesting pieces of history. Uh, And he really uh, was an intelligent historian who I think uniquely used many of these public resources to tell really compelling, interesting stories. He was just a, a joyful person. He really loved his work. Unbelievably diligent uh, and really just an exuberant personality he, and, and just an extremely generous person with his time to other reporters uh, and believed very passionately in, in telling stories about national security and holding people to account for their failures and their and and recognizing their successes and what they do well. So I'm uh, anyway, very sad. Uh, he will be missed. And he made a really unique contribution. Matthew Ayd.
0: Rest in peace.
1: Who would like to go next? Um, I guess I will.
3: So my object lesson does not yet have corporeal existence. So it's kind of a theoretical object. But I hope it will exist by the end of the day. As listeners probably know, a Paul Ryan pack seems to have acquired the SF-86 of not Susan Hennessy or tomorrow <laughs> Kaufman Wittes, but a Democratic congressional candidate who used to be a CIA officer, and before that was a postal service inspector. And the PAC appears to have received this SF-86 under the Freedom of Information Act. Now, for those who are not versed in FOIA law, under no circumstances should a SF-86 be disclosable under FOIA both because of the privacy act and because of I believe it's exemption 6 under FOIA that uh, forbids the disclosure of personally private information or exempts the disclosure but one thing that is generally disclosable under FOIA are the administrative proceedings that lead to the responses to FOIA requests so
2: I and Scott Damn, that's Anderson so meta. It's really meta. We're going to FOIA your FOIA.
3: I am totally mm-hmm. FOIAing the FOIA response to this, how the US Postal Service came to process this FOIA request in a fashion that seems to have deemed it okay to disclose someone's SF 86 to Paul Ryan or his PAC. I mean to file that uh, by the end of the day and uh, we'll stick it up on lawfare when I do
1: outstanding uh who would like to go next we don't have one you don't aye, have one either aye. oh god i'm sorry
2: Well, no, it's okay i'm sorry too
1: <laughs> <laughs> we won't cut that we'll leave that in for the listeners in case you wonder
2: i'm sorry listeners we've failed you this week by I not fell bringing an object fell down my object job. is just my you know my disgrace
1: seen any good tv shows lately <laughs> Uh, Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the show. (laughs) Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare big old show page. Where you can still get our challenge coin. (laughs) I thought somebody I saw, by the way, on Facebook said he had trouble buying it in checkout, but he figured out how to do
3: it. Law, oh, by the way, Rational Security this week is brought to you by the Lawfare Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Get
2: yours now. Get them while they're hot. Your Get them before the summit is canceled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You need to have a lawfare summit and then cancel it. That would be great. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L security. We are also on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a rating and a review. It's really helping other people find the podcast and spread the word, particularly since ZipRecruiter doesn't pay for advertising anymore.
0: Yeah. Maybe we should read some more user reviews.
1: Oh, yeah. That'd be yeah? good. So, okay, listeners. Write in about your feelings about ZipRecruiter and Rational Security.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in fact... If
1: teachers, we have a bad Zip Recruiter experience? No,
0: because, they, because we are
3: not sponsored by any of the normal podcasts. If you guys have experiences that, you know, Mike Pesca can't read and David Plotz and John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon won't talk about. But, you know, you can tell us what's really up
0: with the Casper We're Mattresses. We're like the worst part of Yelp.
3: We, and the we will be your Yelp.
1: Just tweet us your experiences. your one-star reviews of Casper Mattress. Oh my god, audio engineer Blue this apron week. <laughs> by Matthew Kahn, who's seriously reconsidering his choices. Production assistance from Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mike Pompeo and the Beclowned Budgeteers.
0: <laughs> very
1: nice, yeah. very nice. clown. very loud.
0: The clowns you you kind of kind of all word. three segments yeah. in that band name, roll
1: together. Yeah, it's what I do. Do you know that be monster
3: is also a word? What's b-monster? that? To be-monster. To be-monster? To make into a monster?
1: I think we oh. could put B in front of a lot of things.
3: <laughs> There's actually a lot of words that you can put be in front of, and it's oh, a you, legit wow. word. Besmirch? Be-monster is a
1: real b-monster. word. So is be-clown. Be-beyonce? How about be-beyonce? B-b- that's be-once <laughs> to you. You be be you. <laughs> well, you could not, uh, you could not be could yan
4: be, so Sophia. be Sophia. Because you, you be Sophia, because she's already. You
1: cannot be clown or be monster, <laughs> Sophia, Yan. <laughs> and you, you
0: better not be smircher. And you better
1: not be smircher. You better not try. On behalf of my good friends Mark Hoffman, Widdest, Ben Widdis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Be good.
4: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do.